You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about the 1031 Exchange, which is a very powerful tool to build generational wealth in real estate. So I'm very happy that joining me today is Edward Fernandez, who is president and CEO at 1031 Crowdfunding. Ed, welcome to the show. Andy, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And we already kind of went back and forth. Edward or Ed, I'm going to probably call you both uh, during the interview. But so, Ed, why don't we start at the beginning? Sure. You have, you have this cool 1031 related platform, but uh, I'm always interested in your backstory. How did you get into real estate or finance or 1031 or, or any of it? Where did it start? Well, so, um, you know, my my first real job is that I was a uh, produce manager at a health food store. And uh, one of my buddies from church came to me and says, hey, you know, we got this job opening at this place. And, uh, you know, it was a place that was selling uh, uh, precious metals, gold, silver, platinum and palladium. I went in there, took the test. I failed it. Um, but for some reason, the guy called me back and said and gave me the answers to the test. Right. And he says, hey, don't get them all right. Uh, so he uh, gives me the answer to the test. I get to test. I get hired. And that was my first real sales job dealing with clients. And, um, you know, I did that for a little while and then um, went into the commodities market, got my series three and started trading uh, overseas for investors. But, you know, the volatility in that is crazy. And so a lot of people were losing money. So I was like, you know, better to go to Vegas. At least you get free drinks. Right. And uh, so then I uh, do they wait, do they still do that in Vegas? I actually heard that they don't do that anymore. Do they? Yeah, no, they 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 do. They actually. I mean, I don't gamble much, but when I do, I sit down and play some blackjack. The girl comes in and gives me free drinks. So okay, okay, it still works. Um, so you know, and then you know, because of the volatility, I started. I uh, got hired at a, a company called Cornerstone Ventures, and uh, that company actually syndicated um, industrial real estate. So I was. Low men on the totem pole. I was there for 14 years. So I learned, you know, from the phones to creating structures. And uh, back in 2014, I decided, you know, to do my own thing. And that's how I, I started 1031 crowdfunding. And I got to say, you know, well, first of all, a couple things. Anytime I'm talking with a CEO and they began in sales, I'm like, yes, you know, <laughs> we like, because as a, as like a private equity guy, as an investor, like I'm always like sales, sales, revenue, you know, that is yeah. just an awesome skill set. And then another thing that kind of piqued my interest was when you said you worked at this other organization for 14 years and you kind of did every job from the ground up. And that makes yeah. me think of like a restaurateur or something who started as a, a busboy or, you yeah. know, waited tables or whatever. And that's just, it's such an incredible way to learn how to do something is, is that willingness to work your way. So it sounds like you've never had any compunction about working your way up and, and starting from the bottom. Yeah, no, you know, uh, I think, you know, cracking your knuckles on an engine instead of learning how to fix a car from a book, Mm. uh, really actually is, is the difference of, of education. And so, I have no problem starting from the bottom and getting to the top. And, and that's how I uh, I train up my salespeople. I train up my kids. Obviously, my kids work here. My 
nephews work here. My niece works here. My wife works here. And so they all got that feel from starting from the bottom and uh, they have to earn their way to get to the top. Your wife works there. Are you guys, and you're still married? She's She's my COO. Yeah. 26 years. Yeah. She, she's a great manager. She, she deals with the people in a, in a way I'm, I'm type A running through walls and that, that doesn't work for HR, you know? Um, no. And so she does a really good job. And ever since she's come on board, I mean, we have, we have grown by 422% because of her organizational structures. Well, that's awesome. Uh, I love that. Well, we, I want to dive into your company in this, you know, amazing empire that you've built. But before we even get there, sure, I want a market update with commercial real estate because it, you know, it's been up and down. Obviously, twenty twenty one, it just went gangbusters. Even the first half of last year was pretty yeah. strong, and then it was like it just froze. I mean, at least yeah. that's my perception. I'm not actively buying or selling properties, but. With talking with a lot of people, it was like frozen and in Q4 of last year, it was, I was talking with DJ Van Curren of the Family Office Real Estate Institute. And mm-hmm. I mentioned it wasn't that everyone was like totally scared, but it was more just like this anxiety, like, well, let's see what starts to happen next yeah. year. And now, now it's March and I'm like, okay, well now it's next year. What's, what's this yeah. year going to be like? Is activity picking up at all? Yeah. You know, I, I would say September, October, 2022 crickets, um, volume completely stopped. And, and, and it, it transitioned, um, prior to the Fed hiking rates, I think back in March or April, give or take, uh, a lot of the transactions were from investors selling single family homes. Mm. Um, and so the SFR market was so hot. People were, you know, creating an exodus out of what I use the term controlled states into free states. And 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 that really was the drive. Oh, wait, are you and are you in a free state or a controlled state? Well, I'm 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 in one controlled state and I'm in one free state. So you know, <laughs> pick your poison. <laughs> okay. Wait, what does that mean? You have a home and a vacation home, or what does that mean? No. So so I've got an office here in California, and I got yep. another office in Texas. So uh, I I think I can read between the lines, and I know which is which. <laughs> So we're, I'm in Michigan, so we're kind of a battleground state. I don't know. That yeah. Need, but yeah. Okay, so, go on. Go on, though. Okay, so it was maybe starting to pick up in September and October. What well, it was just dead. yeah, it, it really slowed down, and and then it started picking back up. And what we started noticing is that the exchange volume changed. Hmm. It was now more commercial assets being sold, or you know, large multifamily assets or warehouse assets. So the exchange volume as in regards to transactions slowed down, but the size of the exchanges have increased. And so, you know, we would be dealing with, you know, 200, 300,000, 500,000, a million. Now we're dealing with 5 million, 10 million, $15 million exchanges and so the volume has slowed down, but the the rise in the transactions in, in, in regards to value has just exploded in a big way. Well, that's interesting. So one question I have about this with 1031s and higher interest rates, kind of a conceptual question. You know, I, I love the 1031. It's obviously an amazing 
tool in the tool belt of a, a real estate investor that allows you to trade in and out of assets without creating taxable events, right? Really, yeah. really important because otherwise it's like, even if I might want to trade out of one thing into another, it's if it's going to create a tax bill, then I have to be creating more value than the tax bill is going to generate. But once I remove that tax bill, then it's a lot more uh, frictionless. You know, there's still some transaction costs, but the tax bill is a major. But 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 here in this situation, it's like I might be trading out of one asset where I have cheap debt into another new asset where I have expensive debt. Yeah. And is isn't just that debt piece of this enough to make me say, you know what, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. I'll just stay in this asset, even if I kind of hate this asset or whatever, because right. it has cheap debt. I mean, is it so? I guess I'm kind of amazed that any transactions are happening if they're folks that are trading out of a, a, an asset where they have cheap debt into an asset where they have expensive debt. So, what am I missing? Yeah, in theory, I mean, you would think that would be the case, right? But you have to break it down based on profile, generational. You know, you're, there's a difference between the millennial and a, and a baby boomer, right? A baby boomer. You're telling has, me. Right. Right. So a baby boomer, <laughs> you know, they've created their wealth. Yeah. Um, they want mailbox money. They want to simplify their life and they definitely don't want to pay the tax. And then they get to a point to where maybe their children don't even want to take over the empire compared to someone who, you know, maybe he's in their forties, 45, based on your summary, mm. that's the ideology that they would have, right? I've got cheap debt. I've got trophy debt. So the, 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 the baby boomer, then they might be trading out and going into a DST or, or correct. Okay. Correct. Correct. And, and the baby boomer, you know, the high net worth qualified purchaser, has the resources to add equity to their position, which automatically lowers their LTV, which then makes sense for them because they're earning cash flow on the additional equity they're adding and reducing their exposure to the debt. Okay. So, so what's greasing the wheels right now? It's as much this, this is really interesting. You know, because I was talking with CJ Fellini of Noyak Capital the other day, and this is this is a topic he brings up over and over and over with good reason, I think, that we are facing right now the largest wealth transfer, generational wealth transfer in human history. And so, so that macro trend essentially is just it's almost like interest rates don't matter or they matter it, it, a lot. It is. And it's, it's, it's very interesting, right? So, so normally when interest rates go up, right, real estate values go down and cap rates expand. That's not happening. I think maybe we saw maybe a 50 basis points change. So regardless of what interest rates are doing, real estate is still staying. I'll say commercial real estate is still staying very strong. The housing market in certain geographic locations has, has changed dramatically. But yeah, it's because of that trend and because of that transfer of wealth that the sales of commercial real estate uh, is just continuing to happen regardless of where interest rates are today. It's just a it's just a weird real estate market. You said it. I, thank you for saying that, actually, because I've been you know looking at assets and, you know, 
some partners and I are in a private equity fund together. We're underwriting stuff. Mm-hmm. And I keep saying to myself, this just doesn't make sense. Yeah. What am I missing? Yeah. You know, it, 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 so you mentioned cap rates, like a 50 basis point change or something. It's, that yeah. just sounds like they've eased up a tiny bit. But because what I keep saying is, look, cap rates have eased up, but not enough to compensate for the higher cost of debt. That's just yeah. my personal opinion. Agreed. I, I think we, we always say let negative ec- negative leverage, right? Leverage yeah. is hurting cash flow. It's not hurting. It's not making cash flow better. So that's why you're seeing deals utilize more equity and lower their debt position because the debt is really not helping. And so that's why, you know, we, we kind of look at this market and, and we as a sponsor or syndicator, right? Because we have a platform and we have other syndicators on there, but we're also a syndicator. So we're a sponsor and we continue to buy senior housing, assisted living and memory care centers because our cap rates are easily seven and a half to nine because of that buried entry. So that market is a very stable market where if you look at multifamily- Wait a minute, you're so telling very- me you have a product I can invest in at a nine cap? That's a- So we buy between seven and a half and a nine. Now, that's a cap rate when it comes to value as far as cash on cash return. Okay. We still have to use debt, right? I so see. our deals are still at five, five and a quarter, five and a half percent cash on cash return, which is still higher than multifamily. Multifamily, you've got three and a half, four and four percent cash flow numbers, right? Did you um, see so, me? Did you see me like jolt when you said cash? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I see like, oh, hey, let me <laughs> send <the> money. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's why we continue to do that. Now, when we buy at a nine cap, our next deal in Florida, when we buy in a nine cap, we can easily uh pay over a six on cash flow. Um, because of that barrier to entry. So that's why it's kind of difficult when you're looking at multifamily or industrial with those cap rates really not adjusting much. You're seeing debt on those terms, completely IO interest only, maybe a 30-year AM, but the term is only seven years um, because seven-year debt is cheaper than 10-year debt. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's how people are making those numbers work. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, this all makes sense. So well, now I had this gives me another question, though. Your answer, these are great answers, but they keep just giving me other questions. So with 1031 market, I mean, it's a little different, right? Because it's a, this group of investors who already own real estate and they're essentially sure. trading real estate for more real estate. Well, my question is more getting at, let's say I'm a, a passive LP type, like a high net worth investor, qualified purchaser type. And let's say in general, I'm under allocated. To real estate, right? Like I, I don't have 20, 25, 30% of my portfolio in real estate. Sure. Is this a good time to start deploying capital into real estate? Like not trading real estate for real estate, but taking cash or taking, you know, money out of stocks and bonds into real estate. And if so, where's the value? Well, so it, that's, you know, that's a question that you can answer in a lot of different ways. Number one, we're seeing volume coming in, not just in the exchange side, but on the non-traded REIT and partnership side, mm. because investors are tired of the volatility. This market has been sustained uh, you know, with the federal government buying 
billions of dollars in bonds just to keep interest rates are low. So now that the market is not normal because now they're selling off their bonds, the volatility in the equity market is daily and people are- And it wasn't, by, by the way, the market wasn't normal in either direction, right? It was manipulated. Right. It's just, we liked it better when the, they were when manipulated. <laughs> exactly right. We liked it better when, when it was manipulated. You know, look yeah. at LIBOR. LIBOR doesn't exist anymore because yeah. it was manipulated, right? That's right. So, so, so the market now is actually truly being in a place where volatility is normal, but people have been so used to this bull market where interest rates have been low for so long and the market is just doing this for so many years. They're now looking for a non-volatile type investment or their sleep well at night swan investment to reduce the volatility. And so what if you're a lot of people think that traded REITs is real estate. It's not. It's actually an equity. You're buying shares in a real estate company that the underlying assets, it's real estate. And so you're still subject to Powell getting on TV. When Powell gets on TV, get out of the market before he starts talking because the market's going to change, right? Yep. And so you're so you're so is your not so is your traded REIT. So we're seeing a lot of investors now going into the non-traded space REIT space or the private REIT space. Where's the value? The value is going to come when the feds have pushed too much on interest rates and have to put the brakes on drop interest rates dramatically. And you know, when interest rates go down, real estate values go up and cap rates will compress. So, you know, that's I where the value is going to come. Ed, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And you know what? It's interesting when you're talking about the when you mentioned, you know, being in publicly traded REITs and that volatility and the fact that investors don't like this volatility. So we're having this huge generational wealth transfer basically to, to millennials, you know, yeah. maybe some Gen X millennials and, and even Gen Z and millennials and Gen Z, they do not trust the publicly traded markets, the stocks, you know, for better or worse. And I, by the way, I own some index funds, ETFs, I own stocks and bonds, but as a generation, a lot of the folks inheriting the wealth, they do not like that volatility. And I think to some extent, the decision to go into a private REIT or non-traded REIT, it isn't necessarily a value choice because I might look at some publicly traded REITs and say, actually, right now they may be, a, you know, on, let's check the market today. They might actually offer more compelling value today. Yeah. It's almost more of a lifestyle decision that I just don't want to be invested in these assets that are being number one repriced in real time and yeah. annoying me you know making it hard to sleep at night and yeah yeah just like more of a, a roller coaster based on what the fed says in their press conference it's just it's annoying so it's almost like it's a lifestyle choice as much as it is looking for value uh, agreed you know a lot of our clients and the profiles anywhere from 60 to 90 years old you know, and these guys and guys and gals are grinders. These are the people that have worked so hard to build this wealth that at some point they say to themselves, what, what good is it to continue to grind if I can't enjoy my life because I'm on the, you know, I'm going downhill now, right? I'm over the curve and life is becoming shorter and things and, and values change, right? Um, so quality becomes more important than quantity. And so if if I'm going to sit here and and look at the stock market every day and see my my bank, my statements going up and down and I don't know what's going to do and who's what war is going to happen, what administration is going to get in. 
it, it's just brain damage and they get tired of it. Right. And so they just want coupon clipping. Uh, I just protect my principal, give me some stable income with potential of growth and I'm happy. Yeah. And then as totally agreed, totally agreed. I think it's as much it's behavioral lifestyle. A lot of people are just sick of, of the liquid markets and it, not just the mark, you know, cause the thing is a volatile market can create opportunity, but the sense that the market is just so manipulated. Yeah. And, and so it's not even, it's not even Mr. Market doing, you know, that is volatile. It's, it's the manipulation underpinning that it's just like annoying. Like I'm, you're, you're exactly right. I'm yeah. working hard to generate income. I'm saving income. I'm putting it to work and then now I'm getting punished. Yeah. So, but you said something else interesting and the value investor, you know, my ears, you know, kind of perked up with this, just that contrarian bent where, like I said, if I'm looking at deals right now, if I'm underwriting them, it's kind of hard to see value just in static terms with a lot of asset classes, like with multifamily, SFR, depending on the MSA, it's hard for me to say, well, this is a good investment just according to the numbers in front of me. But now if I assume that interest rates at some point have to come down, then that's going, okay, this is contrary. This is now contrarian. And yeah. I love contrarian where it's like, this doesn't really look cheap, but it might look cheap five years from now. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I would agree. I think you know, I, I, I'm on uh, TD Ameritrade from time to time with Nicole, and they're always asking me about the housing market. Mm. And, you know, you're thinking about the millennials and how they can't afford to buy a home. And, you know, the millennials will put, you know, if they're lucky, they can get 10% down. They can't even put 3% down. So they're carrying a 97% of the value in debt, right? And the mortgage rates are through the roof. So, they can't afford to buy a home. So that's why they're living with mom and dad. Or, you know, if you look at rents in multifamily are just ridiculously high. Well, okay. How is real estate value? NOI divided by cap rate gives you a value. If NOI continues to increase because rents are going through the roof, because people, millennials can't afford a home. Well, then there's value there. Right. Even though cap rates haven't moved that much, cap rates will move when the feds drop those rates and it's coming. It'll be 2024. I predict first quarter, maybe let's see, what are we in March? So maybe starting in January, I give I if, if we were in January of 2023, I would give it 18 months and feds will actually have to put the brakes on things mm -hmm. and then we'll see cap rates move again. I like it. I, I, I like it, Ed, that you're going on the record. You're making that specific. Pretty, I love it. I love it. You're not hedging anything. Well, all this could, brings me to your platform to 1031 crowdfunding. I don't know all the details. I mean, even, sure. even hearing the name, the brand name, I'm already kind of hooked. I'm just drawn in because I think, you know, you're kind of your larger point about new money, new investors entering the fold just because investors are in many cases, tired of the volatility in the markets. Yeah. So 1031 crowdfunding, right in the name, I'm thinking this platform is improving accessibility into CRE investing. Is that kind of the macro thesis or why you That's start? That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So 
So think of 1031 crowdfunding, the platform as a mall, right? And a mall leases out a lot of space, right? You've got Nordstrom's and Tilly's and the bands. And what whoever walks into the mall, it's a different customer focusing on going into a certain store. And so 1031 crowdfunding, the platform is the mall. When you walk into the mall, what do you want? Okay, well, if you want multifamily, we have it. If you want industrial or single tenant triple net or healthcare or self-storage, we have it. And so it gives the investor, number one, who's looking to get rid of the tenants, the toilets and the trash, they don't want to do it anymore. Or they're running out of that 45 day ID period, right? And there's a panic because the tax bill is just a third of their net worth is gone and they're not going to give it to the to this current administration or any administration or for that point. We have assets, i.e. Delaware Statutory Trust or DSTs on our platform where we can satisfy their exchange as quickly as five days. And arguably, we have the largest inventory of DSTs in the country. Right now, we have about 70, 70 that currently exist. Now, that's for the accredited investor. For the non-accredited investor that wants to actually get involved in real estate and really doesn't know what they're doing, mm-hmm. we also have REITs, we have partnerships, we have opportunity zone funds, we have notes where a non-accredited investor for as little as $500 can get into a private REIT and start learning how to invest. And so 1031 crowdfunding right now today is a way to defer your taxes to 1031 exchanges. It's also a way to invest in real estate to move yourself from the volatility of the current environment. And for those investors that actually have never invested in real estate, this is a way to get involved as well. Understood. And so it's interesting because I'm hearing multiple sectors and then also multiple wrappers. I mean, I talk, all, I probably bore my listeners sometimes talking about wrappers, you know, but it's, it's really important, right? To, yeah. because I'm all about maximizing triple net returns, you know, returns after inflation, after fees, after tax to me, that's all she wrote. That's all there is. There's no other yeah. kind of return besides right. triple net. So if you're going to be a real estate investor, you better learn about 1031s. You better learn about DSTs. You better learn about opportunity zone funds. These are otherwise, you're leaving money on the table, right? Like, do you want to pay more taxes? You know, who who else wants to pay more taxes? I don't. So it's it sounds to me this is interesting. Well, first, I want to start with the DSTs sure. because, you know, like last year, thinking back 12 months ago, ancient history for me, but trying to remember 12 months ago, DSTs were opening and closing in like seven days, 14 days. It was insane. It so was is, insane. Your, is your platform... Do you have DSTs that are actually, when you mentioned, I forget the number you mentioned, are those all open right now? Or They're they are- all open, 70. See, because inventory prior to interest rates going up, the beginning of 2022, inventory was maybe 30, give or take, DSTs at any given time in the platform. Because okay. as you said, right, they would open up and they would be only fully reserved because money was just flying in. Well, that's a lot, but even 30. 30. To me I like mean, a lot. Now there's 70, right? Yeah. Because volume has slowed down. And, yeah. and the way these sponsors actually distribute the product, right, is through a selling group, right? So let's say I'm a sponsor and I am signing up LPL or Lincoln Financial Advisors, and those financial advisors are actually pre- presenting those products to their clients. Well, if you're talking about like a broker dealer, like a DST. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a broker dealer. So prior to the Fed's um, hike in interest rates, uh, everyone's picking up money off the ground. It was easy. 
right? Now, unless you have a brand, you really got to climb the tree, pick the fruit. And if you don't know how to climb trees, you're not going to get any fruit because it's not falling on the ground anymore. So what's happening now in the space is that a lot of the people who jumped into the DST world, you know, at the later latter part of this economy, um, really didn't have a brand. So they're kind of falling to the wayside. And those that do have a brand are at capturing market share. And, and that's what's happening in this industry as we speak. And the reason why inventory is so, so robust is because volume has slowed down, even though ticket size or transaction size has increased, if if the players in the space are no longer as robust as they were because you can't pick up fruit from the ground and you got to climb a tree, mm-hmm. that means volume is slowed down, inventory is starting to stack up on each other, and now those sponsors that are becoming more creative and making a more effective and a more economically sense DST are the ones that are getting the equity. The new guys that are coming in, they're not getting the equity and their deals are staying on the platform and get be starting to become stale. That's interesting. I mean, that, honestly, that sounds like a good thing for investors, you know, uh, m- yeah. more competition and, you know, the, the, just the invisible hand of the market forcing the sponsors to be efficient. So we, but when you have 70 deals, DSTs rather on your platform are, are you guys a sponsor or an operator or are these external partners that are partnering with you to be on your platform with their DSTs? Both, both, as I mentioned. So uh, we are a sponsor of senior housing. So we've been doing senior housing for 15 years. And so when we create our DSTs, our DSTs are in senior housing. So we put that on our platform and it's exclusive. We don't distribute that to anybody else. The, the only you can only get it from you're, you a, are your only you're your broker dealer you're not a broker you know what i mean in effect yeah we we yeah. do have a broker dealer and we have a managing broker dealer but it's our deal and we distribute that deal through our platform not through any other financial institution in order to create a robust inventory we have selling agreements with so there's 54 current dst sponsors we are one of the 54 and we deal with all 53 And in that aspect, we act as a broker or a representative, but in both roles, because we, for lack of better words, I know this vernacular is not kind of a good vernacular, but because we make sausage, Mm. we know what sausage should be made like when we receive it. Mm -hmm. So we underwrite all the DSTs the same way. Now, we put the good DSTs and the not so good DSTs on our platform. And people go, well, why do we do that? Well, because... These DSTs, other than ours, are on other platforms because they're being distributed by other financial institutions. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, investors invest based on pretty pictures. They don't invest based on economics. And so what we do is we categorize the DSTs. Here's a good one. Here's an okay one. And here's not such a good one. Rather than, even if the client doesn't do business with us and they go to another platform and they see the same deal that was on our platform that was not so good, they're going to question that competitor and go, well, why are you not letting me know it's not so good when these guys have and the business boomerangs back to us? 
because we are doing a due diligence process that is ranking these DSTs to make an investor's due diligence process a lot easier. Oh, I see. So you're underwriting these other ones and then you're publishing that report or content on your website? Correct. Understood. Okay. So it is, to, to use the shopping mall analogy, it's a shopping mall and you're putting your competitors in your shopping mall that you own. And then you're also publishing due diligence or underwriting or whatever report. Correct. Correct. Okay. That's very interesting. Correct. That, so that's that's the DST side, right? So that's folks who already own real estate. They want to sell it. Maybe maybe it's an active property that they own, and they want to go, you know, go passive. Essentially, maybe they're sixty five, maybe they're seventy years old, and they 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 want to invest in a DST. So that's one side of your platform, and I presume those DSTs are largely or exclusively available to accredited investors or qualified purchasers. Correct. Correct. So let's talk about the other side then, because you mentioned all these other products that were available to non-accredited investors. So like, let's say I don't own any real estate that I'm, I'm Gen Z, maybe I'm 24, you know, and I want to get started. Can I come to your platform as a place to get started? You can. So in that analogy, 24 years old, obviously they're not going to have a net worth of $200,000 or an annual income of 75. They're young, right? That would be more of a Reg A type offering. And Reg A came out through the Jobs Act of 2012, i.e. crowdfunding, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so our app that's being developed now as we speak and our Reg A offering that's being developed will accommodate that investor, right? For the young guy who's never done anything, just getting out of college, I've got $100, I want to invest. We're going to have core, core plus value added type portfolios. You click with the AIs, boom, you can invest. Where if an investor is more um, older. Sorry, wait, wait, I, I hope it's okay if I discuss competitors. Yeah, no, jump in, jump in. That might be like a fund rise. Or yeah, real exactly. Local. Okay. Exactly. Exactly like a fund rise. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we have done a really good job of getting the bookends. And what I mean by the bookends is the high net worth investor, qualified purchaser. They know who we are. They know how to find us. But the, the in between the book is what we're focusing on as an, as a, as a company now, because we get calls all day long, every day from all walks of life. And unfortunately, we have to say to a lot of the younger kids, you know, getting a lot of college students coming onto our platform and wanting to understand what we do for. Yeah, Ed, Ed, that's what I was talking about. It's these Gen Z, uh, you yeah. know, they, they yeah. don't trust the public markets. They, yeah, they come to our platform and they yeah. really want to understand and, you know, and, and, and they write pieces like, you know, you know, homework assignments on our platform and oh. what it does in their economic classes, Stanford, things like wow. that. You know, a lot of kids like that. Well, so boy, little if you have all these Stanford students, if I'm you, I want them all on my platform because I'm like, these oh, guys yeah. are these guys are going to be accredited investors 20 years from now. Oh, yeah. We, we get professors, too. You know, you can see their yeah. email, stanford.edu, you know, or yeah. warden.edu. I mean, it's, it's sure. professors are on our platform as well. And they're 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 using our platform correct for curriculum to teach their students about economics and real estate and things like that, right? Yeah. Um, and so, with, with that being said, 
you know, for the for the investor that's 35, 40 years old, that maybe has a net worth of $200,000 a year, or at least an annual income of $75,000 a year, and really can't do the high net worth stuff, those are where the non-traded REITs come in, right? Or the partnership type deals come in, or the no programs come in. In regards to investors who sell a business or sell stock and don't want to pay those taxes, well, you know, obviously you have to be accredited to do those, and that's where the opportunity zone funds come in. So we're 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 pay, playing an infinite game, not a finite game, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have competitors; we have rivals, right? We're we're looking to have rivals to make us better. And so, why do we do what we do, Andy? We do what we do, and I know, you know, I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to help you understand the story. Is we. You know, there's a lot of investors out there that have been deceived, misled, misunderstood. And the intent of 1031 crowdfunding is to create a transparent environment where an investor can have the comfort to actually invest without feeling those emotions. And so that's what drives this organization. That's why we say we're playing the infinite game, not the finite game. I'm not trying to beat you. I'm trying to outlast you. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I, I think, you know, how you describe the uh, the bookend analogy in having that whole product suite, I think that's really important, actually, because, you know, like like on this show, we really we're producing content for high net worth investors, right? Like this show is really aimed towards yeah. qualified purchasers, family offices, RIAs and wealth managers who represent those folks. But I'm always conscious there's a lot of other people who listen too, and they're the next generation of those things, yeah. right? So, yeah. the 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 you know mo- by and large, most future qualified purchasers who are 21 are not you know there's I'm sure some trust fund you know yeah. whatever heirs, but yeah. you know they're going to start somewhere and they're going to establish relationship or trust or learn brand names and and kind of along those lines things you've mentioned of transparency i really think these younger generations they insist on that yeah i i think that's very important i mean there is a there is a drastic change in the way you have to do things um you can't continue to think that the same is always going to work you always got to transform and you've got to actually accommodate uh for those investors that are the future and so those investors that are in the future are going to establish a relationship with a with a company that has established a brand and established a track record, and they will continue. Uh, they will continue to invest as long as the results are the results. Um, and then so that's what we're gearing up for. We're gearing up for those investors. And, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of platforms that actually do that. Um, and so we want to be one of the first ones to be able to capture that market. I mean, especially I'm just thinking of 1031 exchange. You have to be thinking long term, right? Because like think of the typical investor who does 1031 exchanges. I mean, even if they're doing it relatively frequently, it might be every three to five years yeah. or whatever. So you do have to be that company that sticks around that that lasts, as yeah. you said, because if you do a 1031 exchange, if you are, you know, exchanging in or out, whatever, if you're involved in a transaction in 2023, I want that same investor to come back to me in 2028 or, or 2032 or whenever. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, you know, we're, and we're doing that as well. You know, 
the big thing now today is what's called a 721 or an upread, right? Mm -hmm. Where if the any administration does away with 1031 exchanges, which we had that scare in the uh, 2020 uh, campaign, uh, no one's really talking about 721. No one's really knowing what a 721 is, right? We've covered. I have to say, we've covered. We did do an episode on 721 exchanges yeah, on my show. So yeah, but you know what? Walk us through them again, because there's. I mean, I think most people still don't even know these exist, yeah. let, let alone how to use them. So. Walk us through 721 exchange up REIT and how it fits into this whole picture. Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of investors call us and say, you know, I heard that I can invest in a REIT. And I have to say to them, you know, I'm thinking you're a 721 is really what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, and so the way a 721 works, I'll, I'll, for your audience, I'll draw a mental org chart. So we have a, the top box is the ink, the REIT box underneath that is an operating partnership of that REIT. And then underneath that box horizontally, there's the SPEs and that's where all the real estate is owned. And the reason for that structure is that if the real estate was owned on the top box and the REIT said, I want to digress myself of uh, $500 million of assets, they would have to sell the entire portfolio. So when you create an operating partnership, you can actually do uh, what I would say, pizza, pizza by the slice, right? I can sell a little bit of that, buy a little of this, because of the of the structure. So what a 721 is, is instead of investing in the top box, which is a REIT, um, which is not qualified for an exchange, you would own units in the operating partnership of that REIT, which is the direct owner of the real estate. That's why it qualifies for the deferral of the tax. So the REIT on the top is one layer removed from the real estate. That's why it doesn't qualify. But the operating partnership is 100% owner of all the SPEs, it does qualify. So for investors that are looking to diversify themselves in billions of dollars of real estate instead of one or two or three assets, they would be somebody who would go into a 721. Instead, one of the things, but one of the cons are, the pro is you got diversification. The cons are when you go into 721, I call that hospice. That's where you go to die. Yeah, no, it's, it's terminal. Uh, right. Right. You're gonna you're, if it's a perpetual REIT, I guess you can hold it there for the rest of your life. You know, depending on the the age of the REIT. But as opposed to a 1031 DST, where I can theoretically every seven years or whatever go into a new DST. Right. This, uh, when I a 721 exchange would be like an alternative to a 1031 exchange, but now in the REIT, I'm kind of stuck here. Is that yeah fair to yeah, say? Yeah, you're not swapping until you're dropping anymore. It's, it's it. It's over, right? Your exchange is over. But what some investors like is that the ability in a DST, you can't liquidate unless the asset is sold. Mm -hmm. In a REIT or a 721, those operating partnership units, you can convert into REIT shares and liquidate. So if I have a million dollars in deferral, in the operating partnership and I'm at a certain tax bracket at my age and I say, you know what? I want $100,000. Let me convert $100,000 into REIT shares, get those shares redeemed and I'm willing to pay the tax on 100,000. Compared to a DST, I got to wait until the entire thing liquidates. Everybody with a DST, everybody goes together, but with the upreit, I get to choose and I can liquidate a little bit at a time yep. on my own timetable. Correct, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So you still really get the initial tax benefit. You're just giving up the eventual tax benefit, I suppose, in exchange for having more control over the liquidity. liquidity. Over liquidity. Yeah. And the thing is, is though, and, and, you're, and you're giving up growth, right? Mm-hmm. Because in a REIT, like let's say I, I go in and my units are worth $10 a share. And then all of a sudden, now the REIT share at NAV is $15 a share. Well, the only way I can capture that $15 share is by converting my units into shares. And that's a taxable event, right? Mm-hmm. Compared to the DST, I bought it for $20 million, Now it's worth $25 million. The DST liquidates, right? I've captured the growth of the gain on that real estate. So in a REIT, that's hard to do. Understood. Well, it, let me ask, I know we're short on time, but I, I did want to ask about DSTs, 1031s versus the, the 721 up REITs. How is, I guess, the growth or activity or like on a future basis, is one of those growing faster than the other? Are there any you know trends that you're spotting? Well, so, you know, as long as the REIT in the 721 is calculating NAV on a quarterly basis, which is a heavy lift, right? You got to appraise all the assets and then you're calculating NAV. You're yeah. going to capture growth, right? Um, in the DST, it's all based on NOI, right? If you know what NOI is and you know what the purchase cap rate was, you already know what the number is when it comes to value. So it's it's a lot easier to calculate your own value in a DST than you can in a REIT because you're waiting on the REIT to pre- do all the reporting for you. And then you'll know what the value is based on NAV or IE, the share price. But are these 721s, I mean, are they getting more popular? I feel like- Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. And here's why. Look, look I'm going to, and I know we're short on time. And here's why, Okay. It's all about money for the sponsors. And, and let's, I'm just, it's a benefit to the investors, but it's all about the money because here's what's happening. If a DST liquidates, that equity either will stay or go. But if you create DSTs, i.e. REIT food, and you take that asset in the DST and you contribute it to the REIT, and, and for the contribution, you give operating units instead of cash and the investor still gets the deferral. Oh, so now it's like still part of my AUM or whatever. Yes. Keeping, yes. It, in the, keeping it in the family. Yes. The equity <laughs> doesn't have wings. Yeah. It stays, <laughs> right? And because yeah. client acquisition is the biggest cost of any organization. Yeah. So if you can keep the AUM, you're making a lot of money for watching paint dry. So do you then, do you have a REIT then in senior house? We're launching a REIT. We're launching a REIT. Uh, it should be ready hopefully by the end of this month, if not uh, beginning of April, end of April. It's called the Covenant Diversified REIT. Um, it, it, we're starting with senior housing, behavioral health, but we're going to do multifamily, things like that. Uh, and the intent is to provide a good cash flow to investors, but also the intent is to create a growth scenario for the organization as well. So that, you know, I have no problem saying it's, it is about making money, right? Mm-hmm. We, uh, you know, I am a capitalist and it's a lot of hard work, um, but it's also a benefit to our investors who want to take advantage of that 721 option if it's a good fit for them. Ed, I love it. I, I love your, uh, your candor and honesty. I mean, 
you know, what you do, it's, it is hard work and you know, you're, you're, you are in it to, to make a profit. And I think just being transparent and having that candor actually goes a long way. Yeah. Appreciate that. Thank you with folks. Yeah. But, but that being said, where can our audience of advisors and high net worth investors go to learn more about your platform? You can go to www.1031crowdfunding and then there's a big orange button that says register now. Um, and as soon as we see you come in and you're a qualified investor, i.e. Uh, accredited, uh, our sales team will give you access and then you'll be able to view everything. And if you need us for uh, any suggestions or any feedback on what you need to do and how do you need to do it, that's what we're here. We're here to serve you. Awesome. And I'll make sure to also include that link, of course, to the website in our show notes. Ed, thanks again for joining us today. Andy, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.